The reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 7. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies... For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my, com my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing thing in Israel. This is God's Word. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andy. Good morning. It is good to be here this morning. I made a comment about dancing, and then later I realized that uh, that could be misunderstood. The Bible says, come to before the Lord with dancing. And uh, so it is okay to dance before the Lord, um, because that's different from a vertical fulfillment of a horizontal desire. That's a different kind of dancing. Okay, good. Everybody gets that. All right. Um, but yeah, we're in Joshua 7. We're going through the lost potential of prayer as a series out of the prayers of Joshua. And in each of these instances, we want to see how we might can miss it. And so today, it is called Time to Not Pray. Now, before all my English majors get on me, even my daughter wrote me and said, Who split the infinitive? And I said, I did. Now, I did it on purpose. Uh, it should say, time not to pray. But what that does is makes you think that there's a certain time of day you should pray, a certain time of day you shouldn't. What I want you to get, so I wrote her back uh, actually today, and I said, should I said, time to pray not? And she finally said, no, it's time not to pray. And I went, I know, I was just kidding. So uh, she, then she, oh, okay. But, but there is a time in the Bible where there's a time to act, after prayer. Now, I don't want to say not to pray because you ought to pray. But there is a time in the Bible where we ought to act after prayer. And this is one of those instances that we come to. Uh, th this week, uh, I, I get a uh, daily devotional from Chuck Lawless, and you can get it too. Just look up Chuck Lawless uh, uh, com, and you can get them, and they're very good. And one day this week, he gave two instances 
that are found in the Bible that just fit right in. One was when Joseph was in Egypt and he had uh, saved the world by putting aside grain for seven years. And, and Jacob and the leftover brothers had heard about it. And in Genesis 42.1, Jacob looks at his sons and says, uh, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? In other words, why are you standing there looking at each other? Go to Egypt, get some grain. It's like, did you need me to say that twice? Go. And, and, and they were just kind of frozen. The, the other time, it's the actual disciples. It's in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. And the Bible says, an angel appears and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, the angel saying, he told you what to do. Why are you standing here just looking up? Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. That was what God told us to do. Jesus told us to do before he left. When we come to an instance here, and, and this is actually a lament. Uh, in the Bible, a lament is when you are sorrowful for your sin. You're lamenting before God. But it can also uh, be you're lamenting because things aren't going well. And uh, in all of our lives, things are, have been kind of messed up outside of our control for for about a year now uh, with, with the diseases and all that. And we might be looking on, out there on the landscape and still lamenting before God. But here is a time when God wanted them to do something and they disobeyed him. And then this judgment comes and Joshua starts crying out, Oh God, why, why, why? And God says, quit praying. Get up. There's something you got to do. And, and so that's what I want you to see. So... Today, I want you to make sure you remember there is a time to pray and there's a time to act. Sometimes we pray about it and expect God just to do some miraculous thing. You know, Jesus said if, if you had enough faith, you could say this mountain, move and it would be cast into the sea. Y'all remember that text? <clears throat> okay, that wasn't a rhetorical question. All right. Well, sometimes God hands you a shovel. You go, what's this? He goes, start digging. You want it moved? Move it. I'll give you strength to move it. And we forget that part of answered prayer that sometimes God gives us the strength to do what we're asking him to do. God won't do the supernatural when the natural will work. That's why we miss God so much. Because we got so much natural in our society, in our country. We've made such advances in so many things. We don't have to ask God so much for his help. And we forget that we are totally dependent on God no matter what outside resources we have. And here uh, is a great lesson to Joshua and to the people of Israel. It's, it's already been read for you. Um, and, and what had happened, and you know what had just happened, just before this, I want to I lay out this progression to this prayer, uh, that just before this, they had seen the walls of Jericho tumble down. We, we talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, that, that we saw the walls of Jericho fall. Uh, they came down. They've had this great victory. And we come to Joshua chapter 7. And it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carni, son of Zabdi, son of Zerod, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. When, when they took that first city, and, and this didn't go on and on and on because they needed stuff that those people had, but God wanted to set this as an as a understanding and a tone for Israel that you don't need what the world has to offer. You don't need what this land has, already has. I'm your God. I'm your supply. And you just defeat that city, 
Don't anybody take anything away from it. Because usually you defeat people, you pick up the good stuff and keep it. And this one guy picks up some silver, some gold, and, a, and some kind of garment. Now, but I want you to go back and look at verse 1 again for just a second. It says, the people of Israel broke faith with God. One man can affect a whole nation. Remember, it's probably over a million people at this time wandering around the desert. We'll assume it's a big number. It might have been less than a million, might have been more. But it was a big number. And one guy messed the whole thing up. You see, you think that what you do only affects you, but what you do affects the body. Uh, there's that funny illustration of a little toe. A little toe, you may never even think about it, unless you're a woman getting, you know, pedicures and stuff. But, just keep them covered, that's the easiest way to do it, but, um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but you just get up in the middle of the night and stump it, and all of a sudden the little toe becomes the focus of your entire body's attention. Right? That becomes the most important part, the hurt part. Well, so any little part of the body affects the whole body if there's something wrong. And there's something wrong here. And, and this one man decides, man, I'm going to keep that chunk of gold because that'll, that'll pay for a lot in the days to come. And God saw it, and it says the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel because of that one guy. Just want you to keep that in mind, that, that, because what you do will affect the entire church. And so then we read in, in verse 2 that Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went out, spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua, and they said... Don't, you do not have to send, uh, I'm sorry, do not have all the people go up, but let there be about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. Now, God had never told them to do that. He told everybody to go every time. And these men go, and they look it over, and they go, Jericho was so easy. They forgot the supernatural work of God there. It's only, I mean, they're so, just send two, maybe 3,000 guys. It'll be fine. And so Joshua said, okay, cool. He trusted his spies. They send up 3,000 men against this small place called Ai. And what happens? It says 3,000 men went up there from among the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. Now, here's the part that really kills me. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of the men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down in the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, there, there's a part of that. I don't know if you caught it. I, I thought of, of it. It would be real nice if you could go to war and never lose anybody. But that's not possible. And so, one of the burdens of leadership in the military or as a president of the United States or any leader is counting the personal cost of what's going to happen by your orders, by your command. And so there are men that volunteer and they go and they stand on the front line between us and danger. They know that risk that they're taking. And, and we applaud them that they put their very lives on the line for the rest of us. And they know that it's possible that they could at some point die in warfare. This was 0.01% of the people that went up. This is 1% 
point zero one. It's 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 a very small number. Yet the other two thousand nine hundred. And you do the rest of the math. Was it uh, sixty-three? Run in fear, because thirty-seven died, thirty-six or seven died. I just wonder about that. What happened? What was so dramatic about such a few number? You would think in a attack, well, we're going to lose a couple or a few or that many, but they just, it scared them to death. They, I, I guess nobody died at Jericho, so they thought they're just going to walk in and kill everybody and nothing was going to happen. Maybe they need to learn that lesson. I'm not sure exactly, but sometimes a small defeat can make you a quitter rather than a crusader. See what I'm saying? When you go to fight the devil, expect it's going to get bloody. I mean, I wouldn't crawl into the ring with a prize fighter because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to lose big time. But that's talking about the physical world. And yet we call people to fight spiritually against the greatest enemy that we have, Satan. And sometimes people aren't prepared to go fight him. My son was on a mission trip in Africa, and, and they had seen a lot of really things that we don't see a lot here. And uh, they'd seen people, uh, demons cast out of people, and some other miraculous things happen. And uh, the missionary is driving by, and he says, that's the most intense Muslim section of this city. And he said, can we go there? And he said, y'all aren't ready to go in there. Now, he said it, he's Filipino, so I don't think he said y'all, but he said, you're not ready. And what he meant was, you're not spiritually ready to go in that dark of a place because you will be overcome. You will be overwhelmed. It is important for us to stay close to Christ, to stay close to the Lord. And so, God is at work here. And they'd had this miraculous victory. Now they've had this humiliating defeat. And it shook their faith. Pastor Andy uh, began reading there uh, for us uh, in verse 5. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of the men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them uh, at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then Joshua tears his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Now, I'm, I'm going to give Joshua some credit here. It seems like it's something that we as a, an American people have forgotten. And that is, in catastrophe, the first thing we ought to do is pray. And we have forgotten that as a church as well. And I don't mean just Calvary. I mean the church in general. That, that when, when catastrophe strikes, that is a call to prayer. And it's probably a call to repentance. It's a call to seek God. At least let hear from him. What is it he's trying to tell you? What is it he's trying to do? But that comes down even to our personal life. Listen, you're a Christian. You've got an enemy. He's going to come against you whether you do anything or not. He hates you. He, he wants to destroy you. And if you live it all for the Lord, the, the enemy, Satan, is going to come after you. But we forget that when we see that attack, the first thing we ought to do is pray. We, we learn little... We think they're little tricks or little formulas, and we pull out our puny little weapons to fight. But remember, we read it last week, and Corinthians says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual. 
And we forget that when we have these problems, we don't fight them with, with formulas and plans and ideas. We fight them by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the power of God. And so I want to give Joshua credit that he did pray, and he ought to have prayed. He ought to find out from God, because obviously the man didn't know what, what was going on. He did not know what had happened. And so he is willing to repent and fall before God and say, God, what's going on? But in that we hear his lament. It's like, why did you even bring us over Jordan? We're going to lose. Now, again, I don't get a 0.01% scaring them so bad, but it might have been the first time that happened, and so they didn't know what to do. Joshua is this warrior, and he becomes a warrior. They do clear out the rest, uh, pretty much all of it. And, and so they do become great fighters. But Joshua is now broken in prayer because it didn't go the way he thought. And that's the second thing I want you to see. The run-up is what we saw. They had victory. They got lazy. One guy sinned. And they didn't even know God was mad at them. And now they have a defeat. And Joshua at least goes to God to find out why were we defeated, what's going on. And God does tell him and show him what to do. And so, beginning in verse 7 is the prayer that, that I already read, 7 through 9. But notice what it did. It made Joshua unsure about the mission. I thought you brought us over to destroy this land. And yeah, we, you know, Jericho, that was a piece of cake. Thanks for that one. But the first little town we go to, we get defeated. Why? And all of a sudden, he begins to doubt the will of God. In, in, in the study, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby talks about this as a crisis of faith. That you, you've sensed the leading of God, you know the leading of God, you begin to do it, and something will happen to make you wonder, wait, is this the right thing to do? Is this? And, and our enemy does not want us to accomplish the will of God. That makes common sense, doesn't it? The enemy does not want you to pray, does not want you to accomplish the will of God, so he will fight you. And so now they're unsure about the mission. Did you really send us in here to overtake this land when we couldn't even defeat that little town up there which, with 3,000 men? It makes them doubt the future that they're going to have in that land. Is, I thought you were going to... But we kind of have that same attitude, don't we? When, when sometimes, well, at least... I, I don't know if we still do this. I, I, I'm thinking back to my youth and, and growing up. But I, I do believe that we have this idea that when we become a Christian, everything becomes easy. Friend, you become a Christian, everything gets harder. And the Bible promises that. I don't know how we ever got to telling people that, oh, just come to the Lord and everything will be great. No, it won't. It's going to get tough. Now, the retirement benefits are out of this world. But while you're here, man, it is nasty. It is a fight. It is a bloody to the death fight. And God calls us into that battle. He calls us into that struggle. And sometimes, though, when we think we see clearly the way of God, we think it's going to be easy. These children of Israel might have forgotten that, yeah, I'm giving you the land, but you still got to fight for it. You still have to fight for it. I, one of my favorite little things I tell, and I may have said it here, that there was a Scotsman sitting under a tree in Scotland, and a guy rode up on a horse and said, what are you doing on my land? This is my land. And he said, how did it become your land? He said, my ancestors fought for it. Stood up, said, get off your horse. We'll fight for it again. <laughs> we forget that it, it might be your land, but you still got to fight for it. God has given us his blessing. He's given us, he has promised. And, and here's where I wanted you to really tie this in. In Psalm 2, 
God promises to Jesus the nations of the world for his inheritance. Who is fighting the battle to take the land that has been taken over by the enemy to give it to Jesus? The answer, and I won't make you say it out loud first, the church. It's now set with me, the church. We are the vehicle in which the gospel rides. God has called the church to take the nations for his glory, not politically, not militarily, but by the gospel. And, and here Joshua, now he doubts their future. He's unsure about the, mis- the, the, the mission. And sometimes I hear religious leaders talking and we are concerned because we see that we're not doing the mission the way we feel like we ought to be doing it we're not advancing the way we feel like we ought to be advancing not that God's silent God is doing a lot of great things but we sometimes get discouraged and begin to doubt and lose hope and I really almost don't I I shouldn't admit this stuff when I'm preaching it but I I, I wonder about this last thing he says he might have just been copying Moses because it was an appeal Moses would make to God over and over when God get tired of him in the wilderness and let him just kill them all and, God, and Moses would say, but God, you, you told the world, and we, you told us to tell them that these were your people, and you were going to deliver them and take them out of slavery and get them over to a promised land. If you kill them in the, in the wilderness, the whole world's going to say, well, where's their God? Why couldn't he take care of them? And Joshua says that same thing at the end of the prayer. He has, he's worried about God's business. I think God can handle his own business, by the way. But, and it says... Um, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? What's going to happen if we get defeated? If we get beaten down? Well, it's a legitimate question. If the Christian doesn't live in victory, what does that say to the lost man? I, I hinted at this last week when I said, if a lost man is sinning, and a Christian is sending the same sin to a lost man, what does that look like? Looks like there's no difference. God calls the Christian to spiritual victory in his own life and in the way he lives his life. God calls us to overcome. He calls us to, to stay faithful and to grow and to, and to overcome and to be his witness in the world. And so that prayer is a legitimate prayer. God, what's going to happen to your great name? And God basically is going to say to Joshua, it's not me, it's you. Y'all are the ones messed up. I was doing it right. Y'all messed it up. And that will always be God's answer to us. God never fails. Uh, God has never failed and he's not going to start with me. And, but I fail God, but God is strong enough to overcome my failure. That's what's so neat about God. Even when I mess up unintentionally, I don't want to mess up on purpose. God is strong enough to even turn my mess into his glory. But we got to be close to God to be doing that. And so, there's an action of restoration that has to happen. We, we, we've seen this, this uh, lead up to this prayer. We see this Joshua being broken in prayer. But then, in verse 10, here's what God says to Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. I, I can just... I, I, I don't know how God said things out loud to men in the Old Testament. Why have you fallen on your face? Like, quit your whining. It's <laughs> kind of a good translation. What's your problem, man? I'm not, why are you talking to me? Y'all the one messed up. Get up. 
quit that. God's kind of saying to Joshua, and I don't know what tone God used. He might have said, Joshua, arise, son. I want to tell you something. But I, but I get the sense it was not quite that nice, you know. Why have you fallen in your face? Israel has sinned. Y'all have sinned in the camp. You got to do something about it. And so he gives this whole text that Pastor Andy had read. Here's what I wrote down. Crying time is over. Crying time is over. Sometimes you need a good cry. I'm not saying you should. And I have to be careful here because sometimes I, I've, I don't get to the crying and maybe I should. But there comes a time before God when God says, quit your whining, quit your crying, get up. Get up and go. Now, those who don't ever stop to pray, they go in and eventually they're in their own power because they forget to acknowledge God in all their ways, right? They're, this is a double thing. You've got to stay in touch with God. But sometimes when you're praying to God, God goes, dude, get up. Now's not time to pray. Now's the time to act. So there, there is a time to get off our, off our knees. But the crying time is over. God is telling Joshua, I'm going to call you. You've got to do something really tough now. There's something's going to be really hard to do, but you've got to do it. It's not the time to be crying. It's the time to be acting. And here's what he calls them to do. Crush the sin. To crush the sin. To absolutely get it out. Jesus re-said the same idea in a, a little bit different way. He said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Now, don't actually physically go do that. He did not mean that you physically mutilate your body. God does not, never calls to actually do that. But what he's saying is remove the thing you want to look at from your life. Get rid of the thing you want to whatever your hand would do to cause that sin in your life, get rid of that. Get it away from you. Don't get it where you can't even use it anymore, where you can't get to it anymore. That's the very first thing we got to do. A very wise man calls it, have a showdown with your sin. He also said, never kiss the sin goodbye. I think that's a good, a good thing. Don't ever go, well, I just want to say goodbye. No, don't. Don't kiss your sin goodbye. You just destroy, you destroy it. You cut the tail of the snake off. When a snake comes after you, y'all know that's how you deal with a, a, a snake that wants to attack you. You cut off his tail right behind his ears. <laughs> and it causes the attack to end. And Satan, the great serpent, comes at us and we have to cut his tail off. Well, his head's already been cut off by Christ. We just hadn't seen it yet. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world, right? And it's John 4.4. 4. 1 John 4, 4. So, we have to crush the sin. We have to destroy that sin. And we, we do that before the cross. We take that sin to the cross. And we don't, we, don't conf, we, didn't, we don't confess our sin looking at our sin. We confess our sin looking at the cross. Because that's where the payment is. That's where the, the victory is. If you keep looking at your sin, you'll fall into it. It's like, if I'm driving and Jan says, Ooh, look at that mountain over there. Pretty soon we're going to be riding up that mountain if I actually do what she's asked me to do. Because I'll look. Oh, yeah, that's really, you know. You're going off the road. Oh, sorry. Because, why? Because you go where your eyes are. If you ever take a motorcycle class, here's what they teach you. The bike will go where your eyes are. So if you're looking around, you're, you're going around. So you just get your eyes up where they're supposed to be and you'll stay in that direction. Because your body will follow your eyes. 
very strange phenomenon. Actually, it's a very natural phenomenon. So you put your eyes on the cross, and you'll be headed toward the cross. You confess your sin. You confess it bluntly, plainly before God. But if you just hang over looking at your sin, you're going to fall back into it. You look at the cross, and you go to the cross, and you see on the cross what your sin costs God. Because in this text, they take Achan out. But in our case, Jesus came. God took himself out for us. And that ought to cause an eternal gratitude that you can never repay. And so you would give your whole life to God. In fact, in this text, as he is telling them what to do to prepare, he tells them over and over and over to consecrate themselves, to consecrate the people. And here, uh, he says, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel... These, uh, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. We all have, you might call them a sacred cow. There's something, I don't know what that was, that's okay. We, we all have something like that is a sacred cow to us that we won't destroy. We're afraid to destroy it. Uh, we don't want to get rid of it. We cling to it. We hang to it. When you need anything other than Jesus, you need too much. Now, that's a bold statement, and sometimes I have to be reminded of that. But there are people pursuing things because they don't know Christ. They may claim they know Christ, but they don't know him intimately. Because when you know Christ intimately, you realize he's all you ever really need. And we have to get to that place. As I read that this week, that word consecrated kept appearing, and so I, I looked it up which is a good thing to do. Uh, Pastor, uh, not Pastor, uh, Brother Bobby Sims was, we were talking uh, before this, and he explained two Greek words to me, and I said, oh, that's why the professor said do a word study before he preached on stuff, because <laughs> then you know what it really means. And so I looked up this word, and I went, oh, well, duh. It is the Hebrew word holy, kadosh. That's what it is. That's Hebrew for it. I mean, I mispronounced it. Uh, and if you say you didn't say it right, you don't know how they sounded back then. We don't know. Nobody knows how they sounded. We know what the letters look like, but we don't know what they necessarily sounded like. But that's how we'd say it today, kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That word means to consecrate, to dedicate it. Uh, I, I would say this cup was dedicated to coffee, but I have drank water out of it. So therefore, it is a, if it was consecrated for coffee, it's a polluted cup because it had water in it. That's what that word means. You dedicate it to one thing, and if you use it for any other thing, now that's a problem. Now, when you're on the God side of that, he says, you make yourself holy. You dedicate yourself before me. What Achan's sin was, he took things dedicated to a false god. They were made holy, in the sense of the word, to a false god. And by the way, that word holy can apply to a person or a thing. So he says, consecrate yourselves. God is already consecrated. He's God. There's nobody but him. There's nothing he needs but himself. There's nothing he desires besides himself. God is thrice holy. He's perfect in holiness. Holy, holy, holy. That's why you see repetition of words in the Bible. In, in the Old Testament, 
when he says holy, 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 they're saying that's perfection. What would Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying you can take this to the bank. I'm not just talking. This is just a truth that is true. But when it comes to God, he is perfectly holy. There's no error in his holiness whatsoever. And we see that. And so this the stuff that Achan took had been dedicated to a false god from a people that worshipped a false god. Only one person in that whole town and her family said, I'm going to get rid of the false gods and I'm going to consecrate myself to Israel's God. And Rahab was saved. Are you beginning to track with me a little bit? When you become a Christian, what are you saying? I no longer am consecrated to myself. I am now consecrated to God. To God the Father through what Jesus his son did for me on the cross. And he will fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit. In order to accomplish his will in me. And now you are set apart from the world for God's use only. Now in the Bible there's a lot of stuff that he lets us do. Some people like to, you know, I'm kind of glad I messed up talking about the dance thing. And came out and cleared that up. Because there are people, oh you should never dance. Really? The Bible says come before his presence with dancing. Some people think you should only play a piano in church. I know we're kind of over that now, thank God. But yet the Bible has bagpipes in it. We don't have any of those, Pastor Andy. Let's find the guy. That would be awesome to me. Y'all would be going, ah, but I love it. Listen, we take whatever we have and you consecrate it to the Lord and you use it for the Lord. The intent of a thing is more important than what the thing is. But God gave all things for our enjoyment, and we have to enjoy it the way God gave us to enjoy it. When we go outside of that, it may be sin, but what God gave us, he gave us to enjoy. And when it came to Jericho, he said, don't take anything. I want, I want this victory to be pure for God and God alone. God wanted everything Jericho had. He didn't want the people of Israel to have it. And one guy stole not from Jericho, he stole from God. And that's what we do in our life when we take back a part of our life and we keep it to ourselves. When we say, I want to make my own decisions. I want to decide who I marry, where I live, what job I have, how I spend my money, what, how I spend my time. When we take that to ourselves, we're taking the forbidden thing that belongs only to God and we take it back to ourselves, and we are just as bad as Achan. That's easy for me to say. It's really hard for us all to live. But that is what God calls us to. And he calls us to it very clearly in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the, what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. There is a time to pray, but there is a time to act. And I am sure you, like me, as even as I talk about that, things in my life, I'm going, Ugh, i got to get rid of that. Can't keep doing that. Got to let go of that. Are they bad? No. But they are stealing from God. They're taking away usefulness and things that are good for God. And we have to be careful of that. So here's some things I would suggest you do this week. First of all, humble yourself before a prideful fall happens. It's not that if you have pride, automatically a fall comes. It means you don't know tomorrow and you're boasting today. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And now you're going to look stupid tomorrow because you didn't know. 
And so pride comes before that fall. And now it's a double thing. You're embarrassed. And so humble yourself and say, Lord, I don't know what tomorrow is bringing, so I'm just going to trust you for it. God can do some amazing things. Then secondly, then take an honest look at yourself and be broken before God. We didn't go deep into what Achan did, but I will say this. He didn't confess his sin until they got it down to nailing him. I think if once Achan, once uh, Joshua did start doing what God told him and cast the first lots and said, oh, it's in the clan of Judah, Achan would have gone, the gig's up. Hey, Josh, don't go any further. It's me. I did it. Or when Josh said, God said there's sin in this camp. I don't know where it is. You would think Achan go, that was me. I did it. But they get all the way to Achan before Josh said, son, what did you do? And then he tells him what he did. Don't make God do that to you. Confess before God now, because he already knows. I mean, God knew what had happened. He's acting behind the scenes, and Joshua doesn't see it. He already knew what had happened. So take an honest look at yourself. Be honest with yourself and be broken before God, like Joshua was broken before God, like Achan should have been broken before God. And then thirdly, pray and take action to fully restore your relationship to God. God is not a, a mean God wanting to destroy you. He took that on himself in Jesus. And here's what you've got to understand this. We don't go to God. So many times we don't go to God with our sin because we don't want to tell him what we did. We think he's going to get us. He already knows what you did. He got Jesus for you. He doesn't have to get you. He got Jesus. But he wants you now to live a life totally consecrated to him. And you have to go to him with your sin and say, Lord, though you saved me, I've betrayed you in this way. Here's my sin. Looking at the cross and that sin nailed Jesus to that cross. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the burden of my guilt and sin away so that I can walk freely. Thank you for loving me and saving me. And, and, and you just repent. I'm not going to do that anymore. And you go to God that way. Did you know in history, there's never been a great move of God that was not preceded by great prayer and people confessing their sin before God?